podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to the Paddock Blues Podcast. You can find us on our link tree at linktr.ee forward slash paddockblues. Or you can email us at paddockblues at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Blues Podcast. Today, well, I'm Paul and today I'm joined by Melinda. And we're joined by a very special guest today. It's Dan, also HLTCO. Welcome to the show, mate. You okay? I'm good, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah work night, so uh, I'm uh, running on fumes at the moment. Like, but I'm okay apart from that. Well, other than that, an Everton's form, I guess. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we, we have to talk about Everton, don't we? Yeah. We'll, we will get to that absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to have you on. Uh, welcome to you know our our podcast. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, you've been doing sort of football content for quite some time now. Um, yeah, so it's just fantastic to sort of get you on and get your thoughts and opinions on sort of what's going on in our world of football, but we'll also sort of touch on some some stuff in in your world of football as well, being a Palace supporter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's all good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was going to mention. First, you seem to be one of the most popular characters on Twitter. I think so. Anyway, I followed you for a long time. Um, you seem to like most football fans seem to gravitate towards you because you're not like completely just Palace. I you? you're like you're a lover of the game as well, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I do I do a Palace podcast every day and a general football podcast alongside it. The, the problem with with social media is that whenever you're not um, angry towards other football clubs you tend to get people thinking you're just doing it for attention but I mean that's just the nature of of the toxicity of social media really um but I I tend to see shades of grey in different football clubs like I can understand for example how Everton fans are feeling or you know my, my big thing that I tend to get stick on is Manchester City because I'm often defending them in terms of their core fan base and the fact they had such sizable numbers when they were down in league one because you get such a a way of looking at it now that's very much, they've got loads of money, so their fan base is completely plastic and it's just not something that necessarily chimes with me. So, yeah, I, I do tend to speak about a number of different clubs, but it, it does come with a little bit of stick as well. Yeah, I feel it, it is a bit, you know, tough, I think, sometimes putting yourself out there and, you know, ha- having those opinions. And, yeah, you're sort of all over the football world, which I think is fantastic. But um, I personally admire you so much for, you know, your kind of, your bravery and um sort of coming out and and telling the world who you are and you know living with cerebral palsy and things like that I just think that is like a really brave thing that you did and I know Laura Woods had touched touched on that on talk sport as well um and it was a really moving segment so yeah my hat goes off to you and um yeah we on the podcast really enjoy your your content so keep it coming (laughs) thank you very much yeah it's, it's it's a strange thing that because you know when you are living with it and it's part of your everyday life it's not something I mean it is a big thing obviously but having the anonymity of Twitter for the first 11 or so years and then deciding to do that was a big step but it's one I'm glad I made and to be honest the reaction I've had from people has been fantastic so you know other than a couple of isolated idiots I I can't really complain too much at all yeah yeah unfortunately Twitter is full of some not not so kind people sometimes but I am really glad to hear that you know the response was was really really warm towards you about it because that's that's the way it should be you know what I mean like you're just 
keep keep being you keep doing your thing um but yeah so give us a bit of your thoughts about palace this season sort of just you know as a whole um I know it's there's probably bits that Paul wants to ask you about specifically and sort of dive into but um as a season as a whole how do you think sort of palace are getting on and and what are your thoughts on their season so far it's been a, a very strange campaign because obviously it started with Patrick Vieira. I think the first, you know, season under him was very much a constant upward curve. The, the style of football evolved, the age profile of the squad went down significantly and we got to an FA Cup semi-final. It felt like we were really building something for the long term. But this year or this campaign, it has been very much the other way around. You know, the team has been disjointed. We were struggling for any sort of form. Um and ultimately, the club decided that the time was right to pull the trigger. Obviously, when Roy Hodgson came back in, there was a fair bit of uh, stick that came the club's way because it felt like a backward step. But you look at the three results we've had since Roy returned, and it's, it's quite clear that he has had a very positive impact on the group. So I think it probably points towards there being quite sizable problems behind the scenes that weren't necessarily there for everyone to notice. Obviously, that's me putting two and two together and potentially getting five. But I think the the stark nature of the performances before and the way that we performed since, not just in terms of the wins, but the general nature of the displays, you know, having 30 plus shots at goal, scoring five away at Leeds and doing that without Wilfred Zaha as well. It, it sort of speaks to the fact that the squad needed a fair bit of guidance. And, and now it's a case of trying. Well, I think we've probably got enough points on the ball just about for survival. And then going into the summer, looking to rebuild again with a different manager in charge. Yeah, I think you've got enough points on the board to allow Everton to win tomorrow. Like, I think you, <laughs> I, think do, I think you should do the right thing there. But be kind. Do you think, yeah, do you think it was a good idea? And I, I know it's easy to say now because Roy Hodgson's got the wins. But would you like them to have maybe stuck it out with Vieira a bit longer? I think, I mean, so immediately prior to the decision, on the morning that it was actually announced that we'd. Uh, giving him his marching orders. We we had two games coming up against um, Leicester and Leeds, and that was immediately following a very difficult run in which we pretty much played the entire top half uh, from January the 1st onwards. And I was pretty much saying on a podcast I'd just finished recording uh, prior to the, the announcement of the sacking that I would give him the two games. But, but quite clearly, you know, the club have far more information about how things were sitting behind the scenes and they took the call to, to get rid of him at that point. Uh, it's sort of important, I think, to highlight that Roy Hodgson and Ray Lewinson were then given the international break to work with the players and get their tactical ideology across. So I think maybe it was a case of them weighing up the options and deciding that was the right time to make the call because I think ultimately they probably lost faith in the long-term project that Vieira was was you know undertaking and I think even if we got through to the end of the season we probably wouldn't have wanted to spend that lavishly on targets that he wanted if there wasn't the confidence in him to go forward for another two or three years and continue the progress so I mean obviously time heals all wounds and it gives you 2020 vision but I think you know you look at it in the round the club have probably done the right thing even if at the time it felt a little bit knee-jerk. Yeah, what how how do the fans like feel about Roy Hodgson? Then when initially when he first came in, it was like, oh, what's going on here? Or were you all did you all back it basically? I think it's quite a a difficult thing to sum up specifically because obviously we had him for four years first time around, and if you look at the squad that we had at the very back end of Roy Hodgson's first spell with us, 
it was bare bones compared to now. When we had a, a team that had the likes of Ruben Loftus-Cheek, Mishi Batshuayi, Wilfred Zaha, Andros Townsend, Jayan Kabai, we were actually playing some great stuff under Roy. Uh, and he has been a very stable influence for us throughout his time in charge. We were never below 14th, I don't think, at any stage of his tenure. So as much as you know, there was a fair bit of frustration from the fan base because it felt like a backward step, I think, you know, quite clearly the players have responded well to it. I would imagine there was probably a bit of relief on their part to know that they were going to get solid coaching again. And then you look at the fact that it's only until the end of the season. It's not, I think if we were bringing him back with an 18 month or a two year contract, then the fans would probably be a lot more frustrated about the lack of direction. But in terms of securing our Premier League status and almost re-energising the reputation that had maybe taken a bit of a knock over the last 12 to 18 months of his time in charge first time around, I think it's a win-win really, even if at the time it didn't necessarily feel like it when it was announced. Do you think the players might have um, actually asked for Roy Hodgson to come back? Because I put a tweet out saying that maybe they just feel comfortable playing under his style, maybe. And I got a lot of stick for it off Evertonis as well. I said Roy Hodgson will get Crystal Palace the points needed to stay in this league and I, People saying, oh, no chance, he's a dinosaur and all that. But listen, he's a, he's a he experienced football manager. He knows what he's doing, doesn't he? So what is it, do you think that he just seems to get at Crystal Palace? I um, think he's got, obviously, a huge CV. You know, he's been yeah. working as a top-level manager since the 70s. You know, he has been around and he has, he has shown that from a tactical perspective, he is very solid. Um, you know, that... I mean, obviously, there's a lot of speculation that can go into the specific decision. But if you are going to move away from a Vieira to someone like a Roy Hodgson, what you know you get with Roy is complete and utter tactical certainty. The players will be told what to do in every single passage of play. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the senior voices within this squad maybe have gone to the hierarchy and asked for Roy to come back on a short-term basis. I think you can look towards someone like a Bireze you know, he was out of the team under Vieira and looked completely lacking in confidence. And people from a neutral perspective may well forget that his first year with us, when he was arguably the best he has been, was under Roy Hodgson. So this this assumption that he can't get flair players working is just something that doesn't actually have a basis in fact. And we've seen with Michael Elise, he looks reinvigorated. He got three assists against Leeds in the 5-1 win. So quite clearly, regardless of the age gap, I think there is still a core principle there in terms of his coaching and the way that he drills teams, which gets through to players at whatever race they are. Yeah, do you think it's used as a bit of a stick against English managers that they can't play flip, flair football and total football, basically? Do you think it's something like, you I know, think people maybe, just want a fancy name, don't you? Do you, get what I'm, do you get what I'm saying? Maybe it's an English thing. I think with Roy, there's a huge amount of ageism that goes on. I, yeah, I You know, definitely. I understand it. You've got a guy that's 75 and he doesn't necessarily fit the mould of what you would say is a modern football manager. But he clearly has huge enthusiasm still. You know, you see him out on the training pitch. He's directly involved in all the drills. He's watching it intently. And he clearly, you know, has the enthusiasm to be around that squad. I have a huge amount of admiration for him because, you know, I'm 34 years old and I don't have that much energy from day to day. So, you know, if I'm out there and showing that much enthusiasm to get involved with a group of lads 50 years my junior, by the time I'm 75 years old, then I'd be very, very happy. And I think he is probably quite enjoying the fact that he's got a squad at his disposal now that he knows he can get a tune out of. I I don't think he would have come back to the club unless he was absolutely certain that he could get the points necessary to keep us up. Because 
It's highly likely to be his last job in management. We are his boyhood club. He wouldn't want that relegation to be the last thing on his CV and his legacy. So I think he's probably looked at this as an ideal opportunity to, as I say, re-energise the way that Palace fans feel about him and sort of ride off into the sunset with a huge amount of gratitude from the fan base as opposed to what it was last time when it went out with a bit of a damp squib. Do you think he will stay on, Dan? Or do you think this is just a till-the-end-of-the-season job? I, I would imagine he won't be the manager next season. I don't think that's in anyone's minds. There has been a couple of reports over the last few days, one from The Telegraph in particular, that suggested we've already spoken to him about the potential of him being a mentor for the new guy who comes in. And obviously, if you look at the optics of that, you can go down one of two paths. You know, either it's a young manager that's cutting their teeth in the game, maybe an internal promotion potentially, or someone from another league that has no experience of the Premier League. Because you can look at, you know, the Frank de Boer experiment that went wrong. I'm not suggesting it would have necessarily worked if Roy Hodgson was there behind him, but at least it could have given Frank de Boer a bit of an understanding of the squad and exactly what, you know, it would take from week to week. So, I mean, if that story holds any water, you can assume that the club are going to go for a relatively youthful or uh, inexperienced Premier League manager and maybe he would be open to the idea of sticking around in an advisory role for 12 to 18 months. And I think it would work in the short term, at least. Not, not Frank Lampard, Dan, though. No, definitely not Frank Lampard. <laughs> I'll go on, give Frankie a chance. <laughs> I, I, to be honest with you, I, before he even took the Everton job, there were, there were links between us and him uh, prior to Vieira, I think it was. And I'm not like you know the thing he's a is disaster though. He, he's a disaster though. He, listen, we all love Frank. Sorry to interrupt, but he just is man. He just seems a disaster. It just doesn't seem to fit at all, does it? I, I have this this whole view of of top level players that yeah. go to be coaches. Unless you are operating like Zinedine Zidane was with a Real Madrid squad that have got that internal drive and an understanding of of their levels then you are always going to be in a situation where potentially the example you set as a player is not one that is followed by the people that you are in control of. If you look at top coaches, they're very, very often not fantastic footballers because they have to work out another way of getting through to the people that they are coaching from day to day. You know, you can go down all sorts of routes with Ferguson, with Wenger, with Mourinho. You know, they're not managers that were there and winning things of course you've got the Guardiola's but you look at Guardiola's squads that he's had you know Barcelona with Messi Bayern Munich Real Madrid these are top level players and I think you parachute someone like a Frank Lampard or a Steven Gerrard or a Patrick Vieira into a squad where players want guidance and they sort of expect that the standards they set throughout their glittering careers are just going to be taken up by the players that are under their control. And I, I don't necessarily think it works unless you are a truly elite club, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, completely agree. So, okay, let's talk about, let's drag you down to our level. Let's talk about, <laughs> let, let's talk about Everton. This is something that I think, I mean, all of us have been wanting to get your, you know, on the pod. We've all been wondering what your thoughts and opinions, because we're obviously so close. Like, you know, we kind of live, we live, eat, breathe Everton, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, So we, of course, have our own sets of opinions and thoughts and what we think needs to change at the club and um, what we think needs to happen, you know, especially next season. Um, So, as sort of an outsider then, you know, don't directly support Everton, but I'm sure, you know, as you're very involved in the Premier League, all teams, you know, kind of what's going on. 
What are your kind of thoughts on Everton and what do you think we, the, the club needs to sort of do moving forward um, to be a successful club again? Because I just, I just feel like, like I said, we've all got our own opinions on what needs to happen, board level, pitch level as well. But it would be just, yeah, we're just curious to see what your thoughts and opinions are about Everton. I think, you know, I look at Sean Dyche and I think, He's a very, very solid manager for the situation you are currently in. Okay. You know, it may not be a glitz and glamour appointment, but he's been there and seen it and done it with Burnley. And I suppose over the last two or three years, Everton fans have had the stuff in knocked out of them in terms of their aspirations. Because, you know, you look at the back end of last season, obviously the game against Crystal Palace was pivotal for you in staying up. But even yeah, in thanks, that particular thanks for game, that one. <laughs> Yeah, thank no, you. We, we were two new up in that game and completely yeah. crumbled, which is another point you can sort of make towards Vieira. But to not get off that particular subject, I, I look at Sean Dyche and I think he will have enough about him across these last few games to just about pick up the necessary points to keep you in the Premier League. But of course, you know, if you were to fall into the second tier, the financial situation is yeah. so, so bad that yeah. I would you know, genuinely fear for you with, with the new stadium, with the players that you've got on your books, the lack of saleable assets, really, I, I, as far as I'm aware, from what I've heard from Everton fans, a lot of those players don't have relegation clauses where their wages are going to be dropped. And you are sort of on the edge of a cliff. So I, I suppose my perspective is very much, you've got to look towards the end of this season and almost see it like the wake-up call that last season at the end should have been. And mm. maybe, you know, Frank Lampard wasn't the guy to, to take you back up the table. But I think Sean Dyche, given... Proper, well, not budgets, because I think you've gone down the route of spending too much on players that aren't worth it in recent years anyway. But but an ethos has to be put in place there yeah. where you don't hark back to the European seasons under David Moyes or the Tim Cahill era. See it as a new time where, you know, you, you look at the financial landscape of the league. You've got Nottingham Forest coming up and spending £170 million. You've got Newcastle disrupting it. You've got Brighton and Brentford with their recruitment style completely being disruptors it's not an easy league to be a part of and the only way you're going to stabilize as a football club is to accept that you don't necessarily occupy a place regardless of the pedigree you have in English football's history yeah. to, to be punching above your weight and, and that sounds a little bit too negative I suppose but otherwise you're only, you're only going to be in a situation where you're putting players on huge amounts of money and they don't necessarily buy into what the club should represent to the people that watch it every week I think yeah what you're saying there, and I agree, we're, we're suffering from a bit of an identity crisis, aren't we, Everton? I mean, teams who come up to the Premier League probably looked at Everton and thought, well, they're, they're a very stable club, I know, Europe every now and then, but mid-table, you know, always a bit of a problem for the big boys, and we, we just seem to have gone away from that. We seem, it's like someone who's won the lottery and just just spent the money on things that they don't actually need instead of getting the essentials first, you get what I mean? Mm. Well, I think, you know, you can look at it at all levels of the game. I mean, Chelsea are an example on a, on a completely different financial plane, obviously, but they sort of highlight under Todd Bowley that you, you can't just throw money at a project and expect it to work. You know, if, if you get everyone pulling in the same direction, if the mentality is right, if the players are playing for the manager and they understand what is required of them, not just in terms of tactics, but in terms of what the club should represent. You know, I often say this, I, I you can look at clubs, whether it is a Tottenham or a Manchester United or these clubs that have got specific ways of playing, there are plenty of different ways of playing further down the Premier League and further down the pyramids. You just need to buy into what that is. And I think at this stage, 
you've got too many players within that Everton squad that don't necessarily understand what the fans expect from them from week to week. You know, you've yeah. got individuals like James Tarkovsky, who I think really does, but there are too many that are there that don't seem to want to give it 100%. And and that is toxic at a club like yours because you need the fans to feel as though they are represented by the people that are wearing the shirt on the pitch. And I know that sounds a little bit reductive, but I, I just look at the amount of money spent. And if you're looking at wages and you're looking at the transfer spend, you should be far higher up. And that leads me to believe that it has just been spent in a willy-nilly fashion rather than that laser-guided focus that you do need if you are going to, you know, seat there in the, in the top half of the table as Brighton and Brentford have proven over the last couple of years. I mean, you're absolutely spot on. We need to get you in a room with Farhan Mashiri. Because <laughs> you, you, you've just summed up what it, what, it, what it should mean to play for Everton. And we, and we just, over the last few years, I think everybody's forgot, forgotten that, to be honest. I think it's so, a fantastic point yeah. that you bring up. And, and you know what, we say it really often on this podcast. We, we don't care if, you know, we go down... Four nil, five nil. But if you're running on that pitch and you're showing that you know you really do care and you're mm. fighting in that in that shirt, that's all we want as Evertonians. Just the effort. It's just such a lack of consistency in this squad. I find it's just really frustrating to watch. Well, yeah. I mean, I look at players. I mean, Neil Morpai is an example. Oh, Obviously, I have, oh, no. I have I have history with Neil Morpai because he is ex Brighton. And he seemed to revel in the idea that he was going to put a, a shushing finger up to a load, load of children in the family stand when he scored <laughs> in a 1-1 draw at Sellers Park. But anyway, let's not get too down the Palace black hole there. I just feel as though he is a player that has gone to Everton because in his mind, it represents a step up for his personal status as a footballer. And obviously, that's the same for every footballer that operates at a professional level. They aren't fans of clubs. They are there to do a job and get paid for it and hopefully be successful. But I look at Palace, right? We have a very, very solid academy. We are rooted in South London. We have players like Wilfred Zaha who have come through that academy to understand what it means to play for the club. Paddy McCarthy, who was the caretaker manager before Roy Hodgson came back, has been around the club for 10, 12, 15 years. You've got Joel Ward, who has been with the club since 2012. Nathaniel Klein came through the academy. These things are important in terms of the overall voice that you can put across as an experienced group of players to that squad. Because players like your Ibira Eze's, your Rodson Edwards, your Michael Elise's, they don't necessarily not want to buy into it. They just don't know it yet. And yeah. I think you need players, not necessarily forcing it down the throat of the ones that come in, but you need personalities. And this is why I go back to Neil Morpai that want to come to a football club and live it and breathe it. You know, I look at Newcastle, you can look towards all the money that's been spent, but you can tell that that group of players are really cohesive and together in what they're trying to achieve. Bruno Grimares is, you know, a genuine superstar, admittedly, but yeah. he's gone in there and he really appears to understand what Newcastle means to that supporter base. And uh, I look at Everton, I just don't see that level of cohesion. And I think it would be better served if you've got more voices around that have been there and seen it and done it. You know, you've got Seamus Coleman and there are, others but there aren't enough of them for me and I think that's probably a huge part of it that gets overlooked when you're just looking at a summer window and you're going to spend 30 40 million pound and it's not necessarily laser focused if you see what I mean yeah no uh, I completely agree so we'll talk, let's talk about tomorrow's game then um it's funny because <laughs> yeah it's funny because when we played Palace at home and we were doing this podcast we thought wow wow that was like the complete performance probably the best we played all season you could argue it was Arsenal at home, but 
that for a complete performance, it was Crystal Palace at home, and then we thought we're great here, we're flying, we'll be all right. Frank Lampard's the Messiah, we'll, we'll, everything will be sound. And but we've just gone downhill since then, and uh, and now we're playing this again. And I've, I'll be honest, I'm a glass half empty Evertonian anyway. I fully expect you to just run all over us tomorrow. I have to be honest, like, well, I mean, so if you look at that 3 0 defeat, we were absolutely shambolic that day. You look at the the 3-2 defeat at the back end of last season, already mentioned it, we were 2-0 up in that game and completely crumbled. So the narrative around Patrick Vieira prior to his sacking from talking heads, whether they are people that are completely neutral, you've got Martin Keown, of course, a former Arsenal teammate of his, or Sam Matterface who worked with him at ITV. They're like fighting his corner. And Palace fans who've watched us week after week saw us away at Everton last season, crumble from a 2-0 lead to lose, they saw us away at an Everton team in poor form lose 3-0 and be completely played off the pitch. And we didn't really feel, or at least I didn't, and a number of people that I spoke to didn't feel, as though we were guaranteed to win these games in, you know, fixtures that on paper you can look at as a potential three points. Mm. Whereas with Roy now, we're at home. Obviously, the confidence from coming off three straight wins is there. But I think there's a solid foundation from all of the squad where they know what they've got to do. And I do think, you know, you look at this game, maybe there will be a little bit of an element of, of our players taking their foot off the pedal because of the points we put on the board. But I, I think there's going to be a real desire to continue it anyway. Um, and with that in mind, I, I mean, I understand you're, you're coming into this game. You've got to try and win it. You are in a relegation battle well and truly, and it's an away game. It's absolutely massive for you. But that in itself could be a self-defeating thing because if you press us and you try and us under pressure we have players in Eze and Elise who can really pick apart those spaces and, and we have shown that in recent games so I think the first goal is going to be pivotal and if we do get it then we could rip you to shreds yeah the first goal uh, or anything just even something that bad that happens to Everton in the game heads the heads just go down it's just a collective it white, it you just a, a white flag going up it's just it's really pathetic especially the last two performances I mean they've just come from nowhere them it's Mm. A team like well, I mean, I look Palace at the, will pick us apart, in my opinion. That FA Cup quarter-final at Sellers, you know, we won that game 4-0. And oh. Before it went to 1-0, it was very, very competitive. If anything, Everton yeah. were on top. And then as soon as we scored, as you say, it's like a house of cards coming down. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, from my perspective, I hope we get a fourth win on the spin, but I can understand yeah. why there would be trepidation from your side of things. Well, there's Calvert-Lewin is back. I don't know if you know that. Um, yeah, well, I saw think, that, yeah. We, we think so, anyway. We've had a few false dawns with him, so... Hopefully, with a bit of a focal point up there, we can actually get the win. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much on the floor as an Evertonian at the moment. But you just got to get yourself back up again, haven't you? And that's, that's all you can you, do. I really. think you'll be all right. I, I genuinely do because I, I look at Southampton. I don't see them coming and, and turning it around. I don't think Leicester are going to have enough under Dean Smith because they are all at sea and Leeds. You know, they've been beaten 5-1 and 6-1 in consecutive home games. That in itself is going to be a massive, massive factor in their confidence. And I do genuinely think that if Frank Lampard was still there, I'd be a great deal more worried than Sean Dash. I think he will get enough out of that group just to, to keep you afloat. But really, you know, I'm sure you say it every single year, but it feels like a huge summer for your club in terms of reorganising things. And not even necessarily thinking about finishing in the top oh, half next season. We just like want that. a normal. We just want a normal season, mate. Yeah, just finish, to, finish run the mill. Yeah, it'll do for us. We'll just, take just, <laughs> just stop the madness. That's all I want. It's just uh, mm. 
I mean, I'm I'm 39. I remember us under Mike Walker and stuff in the 90s. And maybe because you're a kid, you don't fully understand what's really going on. As you see me dad stressed out and stuff. But this is the worst Everton team I've ever seen. It is. It's by far the worst Everton team I've ever seen. It's just no fight. It's not. It doesn't feel like Everton. Do you get what I mean? Well, I mean, I, I'm 34. And the sort of golden period of Everton, from my perspective, was like, not obviously in the entire history of the club, but in the recent history, was when David Moyes was there. And you yeah, had, yeah. I, I look at that squad, and to me, that typifies what you want out of this group. You know, a group of players that aren't necessarily world beaters in terms of their technical level, but that are all well drilled and are all pulling in the same direction. Players like your Tim Cahills and your Stephen Pinos that just get Everton. And, and yeah. that, you know, it, you it can run it team, every football yeah. club, can't you? It's not, it's not a you know, rocket science, but there's just not enough of it. And no. I'm not sure what you do to sort of arrest that slide, really. No. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's shocking, isn't it? But, so, but can we get a prediction off you? We always ask everyone if... What, what's your prediction for tomorrow's game, then? What's your well, thing? so normally when I come on to these things, I'm naturally pessimistic, but I think it would be silly of me after three straight victories and nine scored to say anything other than the Crystal Palace win, but I, I won't go too cocky. I'll, I'll say one or one or two nil, maybe two one. I, I do genuinely think that the Everton performance yesterday, uh, sorry, not yesterday, tomorrow, will probably surprise a few. That's just my gut feeling. It's not based in fact or logic. I just feel as though they will have been stung by the way that, you know, that performance against Fulham made the fans feel. I saw loads of, Everton fans on Twitter after that game saying that it felt like it was a real moment of realisation for them rather than one where they were angry. And I think that in itself might galvanise you to, to come out and at least in the first half hour or so really try and put us under pressure. So I, I don't think it's going to be a walkover. Obviously, I hope from our perspective we beat you 300 nil, but you know, it's, it's not... <laughs> It's yeah. not going to happen. So, yeah, we, we will see. But I'll say one or two, Neil. I'm not sure exactly which one I'll nail down at this point. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Dan, I could talk to you all day about football, mate, honestly. Really appreciate super. that, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, been, it's been honestly great chatting with you this morning. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, I, I really hope it's one nil or two, <laughs> yeah, one for us. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, are you going to be going in the match tomorrow? Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, I, I've yeah, got a yeah. season ticket. I've had a season ticket since two thousand and two, and I pretty much could be homeless and still pay it as long as I could scrabble the money together. Do you know what I mean? It's it's, yeah. it's part of my life. So, <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah, it's been like I said, fantastic having you on, and um, yeah, thanks so much again for your time. It's been really, really great chatting with you. It's been lovely. Yeah, and just before, you, yeah, it, uh, just tell people how they can um, tune into you. Oh yeah. Oh, well, yes, I mean, yeah. so I'm on Twitter. HLTCO. Uh, I've got a Patreon account in which I record daily Crystal Palace podcasts. I also record uh, daily general football podcasts. They go up by 8.30 Monday to Friday. They're like a, the general ones are a roundup of everything that's been going on in the game, both in England and across Europe inside 25 minutes. They're £3 a month. I've also got a YouTube channel. Uh, which I started in January, which is going relatively well. Uh, there's only seven or so videos on there, but it's it's going to have more content as time goes by. So if you've enjoyed what I've had to say this morning, then give me a follow or a little subscribe on there. And hopefully I can continue to produce more that you'll enjoy. Yeah, we'll put the link in the description anyway when we uh, put the tweet much out. And stuff that, yeah. So yeah, thank you very much, mate. Thanks for coming on. No worries. Thanks very much. Thanks. Okay. You take care. Sports Social Podcast Network.